feel distant from God? Do you ever feel as though he's not very near to you or involved in the details of your life? Sometimes we feel this way because of acute suffering. When life is hard and trials come, it can be difficult to to sense the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we feel this way because of our sin and a guilty conscience keeps us at a distance from God. But I think sometimes we feel distant from God or we feel as though God is distant from us simply because we fail to take hold of what is already ours in Christ. I want to piggyback this morning on something Pastor Don said in his sermon last week. He said, God has more for us in Christ than what we experience. He has secured more for us than what we have taken hold of. There's food in the pantry, but we can't get off the couch. And the communion meal reminds us of that glorious truth. What we have in him is represented by this meal. And I want to exhort us this morning to take hold of it. So I'll read our passage here, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, just to give a bit of background, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the letter to the Hebrews, but it functions in the same way as many other New Testament letters, which begin with an exposition of the glory of Christ and all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And then, after that great and glorious exposition of the truth of the gospel, there's a pivot to, so what? How does all of that glorious truth about Jesus and what he's accomplished for us impact our daily life? How does it impact how we live as individuals and as a community? So you can think of a couple examples. Romans chapter 12, don't turn there, uh, but in Romans chapter 12, there's a big therefore statement. It says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, live this way. Now, what are the mercies of God he's talking about? He's talking about the previous 11 chapters, all the glorious truth of the gospel, the righteousness of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And then he turns and he says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The same is true of Ephesians, where there's a glorious exposition of of the plan of redemption set in motion before time began and how Christ accomplished it through his blood to reconcile us to God and to one another and the glorious wisdom of God that's at work in demonstrating his wisdom and power to the principalities and powers of the air. And then in chapter 4, there's a therefore. Therefore, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so our passage functions in much the same way. We see in verses 19 to 21 a summary statement 
of the glorious truth about Jesus that he's been unpacking for 10 chapters now. And then the therefore signals to us, what does that mean for our lives? So I want to argue in verse 19 to 21, we see what we already have in Jesus. And verses 22 to 25 is what we still must take hold of that is ours in him. So what is it that we have? Verse 19, you can see it right there. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now that is to say, we have confidence to enter God's presence. So in ancient Israel, in the temple, there were essentially two rooms, one inside another. The outer room was called the holy place. The inner room was called the most holy place. And even though God is outside of time and creation and and can't be confined to, to structures that men build, he chose graciously to make his presence known among his people in that place. So there's a significance to this most holy place. That is where God dwells. And it's significant that only one person, the high priest, could go into that room. And only then, he could only go once per year. And he had to bring with him a blood sacrifice to offer for the sins of the people. It's a very dangerous thing to come into the presence of God. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, especially living in the uh, culture that is sort of anti-sacred, anti-mystery when it comes to religion, why would we not have that kind of confidence? Why would we not have confidence to enter into God's presence? Well, the answer, of course, is because of our sin. We cannot enter the presence of God and live because God cannot tolerate sin. He abhors it. And the irony is, because we are sinners, we have a tendency to forget the severity of our sin, especially in comparison to the majesty and the holiness of God. John Stott, whom you've heard Pastor Don quote many times, the great British pastor of the 20th century, said this. He said, our evangelical emphasis on the atonement, that is, the penalty being paid uh, for our sins, Our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. We learn to appreciate the access to God that Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me, for I am lost. As another writer said, it's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we have a hard time imagining sin provoking the wrath of God. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, even as we've already celebrated the communion meal together, is have we come to the place in our lives of acknowledging we are lost? We're unworthy to come into the presence of God because of our sin. There are many people who call themselves Christians who who sort of Uh, portray themselves as a a vague uh, sinner, right? In the sense that nobody is perfect, right? We're all sinners. We're all in this together. And therefore, no one is guilty of anything in particular. But the reality is, when we stand before God, we have transgressed his law in many and varied ways. And we are unworthy to come into his presence. So when we move too quickly to the good news of the gospel, we can actually cheapen the grace that is offered there. Unless we realize the severity of our plight apart from Christ, we won't express proper gratitude for all that he's done for us. 
But of course, what he has done for us is secure our confidence, right? It says we have this, it's already ours, this confidence to enter into God's presence. And why do we have it? The body and blood of Jesus, as we've just remembered. See, the high priests couldn't go into that room, into the, the most holy place where God dwelled, because of, uh, they couldn't go out without blood because of their sin. One chapter earlier in Hebrews 9, it says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that's what the, the bulls and goats and the animals that Pastor Doug read about a minute ago, that was their purpose, was that they would die and their blood would be the sacrifice in place of human beings who had transgressed God's law. See, the reality is that sinners coming to worship a holy God is a bloody affair. It had to be that way because God cannot tolerate sin. And so the death of the animal and the blood being poured out and sprinkled and all that took place was to be a vivid image of the severity of our sin, that sin requires death. I had the privilege for a brief time to live in Bangladesh, which is a majority Muslim nation. And uh, in that nation, they still practice animal sacrifice from time to time. So I don't know how many of you have been able to witness something similar to that, but here I was living in the middle of a city of about two million people, and uh, across the square from where I lived was a wealthy family who was offering this sacrifice. And to see the image of these 10 or 12 strong guys up there tying up this animal and wrestling it to the ground and then killing it and taking out the blood, it's a very gory scene. It wasn't something I'm used to. We didn't do that in the suburbs of Detroit. But, uh, but they still do that in some parts of the world. And the grotesque image of witnessing the death and the blood and the gore is to paint a picture for us. Right? We need blood to enter the presence of God. Sin had left a crimson stain, and it could only be washed white with blood. And see, the truth is, our worship today, even as we've gathered here this Sunday morning, it's still a bloody affair. We don't bring animals with us. There's no point to that because of Christ. We don't see the blood firsthand. But we partake of the communion meal, and we hear the words of invocation. This represents my blood. We see the blood of Christ in the communion meal. And that blood is still necessary today for us to come into the presence of God. In chapter 12, it says, Jesus' blood still speaks on our behalf. It still intercedes for us and paves the way for us to enter God's presence. Our access to God is based entirely on what Christ alone has done for us. There's nothing you and I can do to add to it. No blood, no sweat, no tears can allow us to enter into God's presence. It's only the blood of Christ. And the glorious thing of the gospel is, this is an unchanging truth. In a world that is constantly changing around us, there's one thing that is absolutely certain, and that is that Jesus has paid the absolute sacrifice, the once-for-all death for us, for our sins, to bring us to God. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, that is Christ, for the unrighteous, you and me. And he did that to bring us to God. The gospel is only a word of pardon for us 
because Jesus took the sentence of death upon himself. And that is what makes him a great high priest. He's the great priest who intercedes for us. That's why we don't have priests in our church here. Because we only have one priest. And our, our priest is not another human being going about doing all the rituals to try and somehow appease God. But there's absolute certainty. He's gone into God's presence for us. And he's paved the way. He said, come with me. So because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, we have absolute, unchanging confidence in him. But yet still our experience of communion with God, of that kind of intimacy with God, does change, doesn't it? You know there are times in your life when you felt closer to God than others. There are many reasons for that. But a lot of it has to do with our approach to him and what we've actually taken hold of that he's secured for us. So we see three things in verses 22 to 25. They're all introduced by this phrase, let us. So let us draw near to God in faith. Let us hold unswervingly to hope and let us consider how to spur one another on toward love. First, let us draw near to God. John Owen, another great English theologian from the 17th century said, the great privilege of the gospel is that we can come into the presence of God. Now, far be it for me to add to the great John Owen, but I'll add this. If the great privilege of the gospel is that we can come into the presence of God, the great responsibility of the gospel is that we must draw near to him. Forgiveness, you see, verse 18 there, where these have been forgiven, our sins have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin, that's not ultimately what we're aiming at. Forgiveness is merely the removal of negative consequences, but what we long for is that reunion, that fellowship and intimacy with the Lord himself. That's what we're aiming at. That's what God is aiming at. Perhaps some of you saw the video that was circulating on the internet, and I'm sure it was on television as well, of the young man, Brant John, a young man in Texas whose brother was murdered by a police officer while sitting in his apartment. And at the sentencing for the police officer, uh, his younger brother, 18 years old, was giving a, a victim statement. And in that statement, he extended a word of forgiveness to the woman who had murdered his brother. But the beautiful thing was not just the word of forgiveness that he extended. He said, if you're really sorry for what you've done, I forgive you. But then he asked to get up and to give her a hug in the middle of the courtroom. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? What good is the word of pardon, the forgiveness, if only for him to turn around and say, now I never want to see you again? That's not, that's not what we're aiming at, right? That doesn't satisfy our souls. But to see the young man ask for an opportunity to get up and embrace the woman who had murdered his brother, a picture of physical reconciliation, that is the gospel, the gospel is not just for us to be forgiven of sins, only to go on living separate and uh, in our independent lives. The gospel means we are reconciled to God. We can draw near to him in faith. Now think about that. When you think God is distant to you, he doesn't just want you to understand the truth about forgiveness. He wants to be reconciled, to have an intimate relationship with you. So what does that look like? How is it that we draw near to God? Well, prayer is obviously key to that. 
Uh, There's a similar parallel passage at the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews that talks about how we ought to go to the throne of grace to obtain mercy, and that's talking about prayer. And the, the word is actually the same in Greek, let us draw near to the throne of grace. So prayer is key, but there's more than just prayer going on in this passage. There's a corporate dimension to it. Notice he says, let us draw near. Oftentimes we think of Christianity in very individualized terms. It's me and God, and that's it. But really, the whole New Testament envisions a a corporate body. And ultimately, that corporate body that meets in various locales is to picture the ultimate day when every tribe and nation and tongue is gathered together there in the presence of God around the throne. So there's something corporate about it. And while right now there's no tabernacle or temple, a specific locale where God is present, God dwells among us by his spirit through his word. God's presence is indeed marked by his word. His word actually constitutes his presence among us. And so when we gather here, that's why the preaching of the word is the focal point of our worship together, because This word dwelling in our midst, as Paul says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell among you. That's the manifestation of God's presence through his spirit in the word proclaimed. And so as we consider what it means to draw near to God, a lot of it has to do with our corporate gatherings around his word. But there's a certain way in which we must approach his word. It's not enough to just have ink and paper available to us. but We must approach in faith. Faith is actually the dominant theme for the rest of the letter to the Hebrews, and you're probably familiar with that from chapter 11 alone. But there's these parallel statements. Look back at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We have to be sincere. We have to want God to get God. If you're here today thinking, I'm going to come into God's presence so that he'll give me something else that I want out there, that's not going to work for you, right? God doesn't answer those kinds of prayers. What he wants is for us to want him and to be in line with his purposes. That's why we pray, your will be done. So we have to want God to get God. But then we're to have this full assurance of faith. Our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Sin makes us feel distant from God, doesn't it? Our sin disrupts that fellowship, doesn't it? But the unchanging truth is the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. And so it ought to cleanse our conscience as well. If you're here today and you're burdened by the weight of a guilty conscience, let me be the one to tell you Jesus paid it all. There's no self-loathing that's going to earn you some greater standing with God. It's only Jesus' blood. The beauty is if you aren't coming near to God because your conscience testifies against you, remember that Jesus' blood testifies for us in the divine courtroom. And then to have our bodies washed with pure water. Many commentators see that as a reference to baptism, but I think there's something a little more going on there. Not only are we baptized, but we're consecrated. Pastor Don talked about that last week from Joshua. And this is really pictured in our baptismal service when the pastor dunks the person and brings them up out of the water saying, you've been raised to walk in newness of life. 
Our bodies have been washed with pure water, consecrated to the Lord and to his purposes. And so having been baptized and having our consciences cleansed by the blood of Christ, we can approach him in faith. And while that faith is still yet immaterial, it's by his spirit through his word. We're not yet physically in his presence. We, we long more and more for that day as we feel the weight of the distance between us. Second, we must take hold of hope. Let us hold unswervingly to hope, verse 23. The assumption behind this command is that it's easy to swerve from hope. It's easy to lose hope, isn't it? Today in America, like never before, we've seen a spike in anxiety, depression, suicide rates, all going through the roof because of despair, hopelessness. It's easy in a fallen world to lose hope. And certainly the people that the author was writing to would have had many causes to lose hope. They faced public insult, persecution, confiscation of their property, imprisonment, sometimes even death. So it's a challenge to hold on to hope. But we have good reason to. Notice he says, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because, or for, he who promised is faithful. Now we know, if you've been around the Bible for a while, we know that God is faithful to keep his promises. But it's crucial for us to hold unswervingly to hope, to know exactly what it is that God has promised. One of the greatest threats to our faith is to put our hope in what we think God has promised when he actually hasn't promised it. So what has he actually promised? Just in the context of this passage, he's promised that Jesus' sacrifice once for all is sufficient to atone for our sins. That's a promise. You don't have to fear judgment day when you know that Jesus' blood has taken away your sin. Coming. Am I lost? Oh, there we go. He's promised that there's a city coming, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Have you ever seen a more uh, dysfunctional political climate than we live in right now? There's a kingdom coming, an unshakable kingdom. America is a shakable kingdom, but the kingdom of God is not. And that is a promise that we can bank on. But this is why drawing near requires us to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Because it's not only important to know what the word says, it's important to know what the word doesn't say. There's a lot of people claiming promises out there that aren't actually in the book. We need to be aware of that. Finally, let us spur one another on toward love. I'm preaching to the choir here. Y'all are here. Brian mentioned it a minute ago. The basic application of this, these final two verses, 24 and 25, come to church. You know, it's one of those things in modern society, uh, we measure church attendance roughly by people who attend two times per month, about. It's difficult to live out the kind of salvation that God has secured for us when we're not present, right? Now, the beauty of the body of Christ is that pretty much anywhere you and I will travel, there is a local assembly of believers that we can gather with to spur them on to love, to encourage them in the faith, to build them up in their church. But sadly, too many of us settle for lesser things. 
Certainly God judges the heart. It's not about the outward appearance or about the legalism of checking the box of church attendance. But it is to say that if we're not here, we're not spurring one another on towards love and we're likely settling for lesser things, aren't we? Is the kids' sporting event really going to satisfy our souls? Is the football game that we could attend really going to satisfy? Is the habitual vacationing? Now, I'm not saying there's not a place to take vacation, right? But in the ease of modern society, vacation becomes a hobby. It's habitual, right? That's what he's talking about in verse 25, as some are in the habit of doing. Not to say there's not good reasons, I can't make it this Sunday or that, but you've got to come to church. That's a basic application of drawing near to God and living out New Testament Christianity. But showing up is, is only a baseline, right? He says, consider how you might spur one another on. The literal word there is provoke, right? Usually when we think of provoking someone, it's like you're provoking them to anger, right? Well, we don't want to do that, although we, we tend to do that in church. But we want to provoke people to love and do good to one another. What a great challenge. How can I provoke my neighbor to be more like Jesus? And I'll tell you, I mean, just looking around this room this morning, I can identify many people in this room who have provoked me to loving better and to doing good in the name of Jesus. So I thank you for that. But we need each other to become the kind of people that God saved us to be. The illustration here, spurring one another on, right? You get the, the image of the horse who needs a quick stab in the side. I've never ridden a horse, okay? But like a spur is like a sharp object, right? And you stab the horse in the side and it gets moving, right? Well, we need each other. And our relationships with other Christians are going to get uncomfortable from time to time. But that's what the blood of Jesus has secured for us. It's secured for us uncomfortable relationships that are going to cause us to grow in holiness. That's the beauty of the gospel. Paul says in Titus that God is creating for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Let me tell you this morning, I'm not naturally prone to good works. I don't think anybody in this room, maybe a few of you are, okay, but we're not naturally prone to good works. And yet God wants us to be zealous for them. Our gatherings together should be an opportunity for us to identify people that we know that we can spur on to love and to do good. But of course, the basis for all of this is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, which we've celebrated this morning in communion. I want to close with the lyrics to a song that's come out recently called, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It says, Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord, the sovereign, the uncreated creator of all things, for whom the universe exists upon the tree suffering in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory see the price of our redemption see the father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory grace unmeasured love untold come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death the god of life but no grave could e'er restrain him praise the lord he's alive what a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you this morning for the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. For though he was equal to you in every way, in glory, in majesty, yet he humbled himself for us and sacrificed his own body and shed his own blood for us. Father, we pray that we would have a a realization of our opportunity to draw near to you because of that work this morning. Father, help us to understand that our consciences should be cleansed if we're truly coming to you in faith, genuine, repentant faith, that we can be free from the weight of a guilty conscience. And Lord, give us grace to live consecrated lives who hold unswervingly to hope and who spur one another on toward love. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.